Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 13, please. Let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have and for the honor that it is to gather together with the body of Christ. And we recognize that it is uh, both an honor but also a duty that you have called us to gather together, to not forsake the gathering together of the members. And Lord, we thank you that we can gather, we can meet. We still have freedom to do so. We have freedom and opportunity to look into your word. And we still have freedom to live according to the mandates of your word. We ask that you would give us strength as we endeavor to live pleasing to you. We recognize that we will not live pleasing to you on our own efforts or our own, our own desires even and our own strength. And so we yield to you and we ask that you would empty us of ourself and fill us with your spirit. I pray that that would be evident in this gathering together, but also in our lives on a daily basis, that we would show that we are empowered by the grace and love and mercy of God rather than by our own self. Pray that you would continue to enable us to minister to one another and to be ambassadors in the world around us. We pray this morning that as we look into your word, Lord, you would grant us wisdom, discernment. Lord, I pray that you would grant me grace in the delivery of it, I pray as well that we would have hearts that are receptive and open to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the last week, and actually for quite a while now, a lot of my energy has been around one subject, and I'm sure for many of you, some of your energy has been around that as well. And it's in regards to COVID-19. And I am loath to have a message which even ties into it, because I'm sick and tired of talking about it, to be quite blunt. Nonetheless, it is a present reality in our lives, and there is a place, a time and place, for the church to address it. And I, as your pastor, and we as your board, have gathered together, and we have discussed this. And so would like to, I don't know if I would say deal with it as a subject, as much as address what the Word of God may have to say about our interaction in the world in regards to it. If I was to ask your opinion about COVID-19 and your thoughts on the current or even coming restrictions, I would probably hear as many opinions as there are people here this morning. And that's among a group that generally, I would say generally, thinks along the same line of thought or the same train of thought because we are one in Christ. So generally, we think along the same direction. If I was to ask the same thing outside of the church, we would probably receive even more varying opinions. And some opinions may be based strongly in truth, and other opinions may be based purely in emotion, and there would be all varieties in between those two. I think as we look across society, and even across the church today, we can see that there is a lot of division. There's a lot of angst that is taking place. We see that particularly in the world around us, and I pray more so than in the church. I pray that that is a reality. But we must admit that it is there. And it is not just within our communities or our province. It's honestly clear across the world. Just this past week, in two different, at least two different tags that somebody tagged on my Facebook page, was a church or a pastor or a leader addressing this issue. And I didn't want to follow suit, so I'm not going to post on a Facebook. (laughs) But we're going to address it anyways. While we are free to agree or disagree in regards to COVID-19, and you are. Trust me, you are. Even here, you are. 
We are not free to do as we please in regards to directives that we receive from those in authority over us based on the word of God. So this morning, I am not going to address the issue of COVID-19. I am going to address the issue of how do we respond to those who are in authority over us. What is a biblical response? You were entitled to think that it is all a hoax and that it's all crazy and that the world has gone insane. There may be some truth to that. At least the world got insane part. You were entitled to think that it is serious and severe and we ought to be doing everything. You were entitled to those opinions, absolutely. And you're entitled to represent your opinions and to speak on behalf of them. And you're even entitled to lobby the government and to speak to the government and to try to make changes. But we must be very careful that in our interaction with the world, our response is biblical. And for us, I think the question, and as we discussed as a board, the question came down not to what do we think about COVID-19, but how are we going to respond to what the government has required of us as citizens in regards to COVID-19. We must choose carefully and wisely how we respond. And most importantly, we must choose to respond biblically. So then, what is a biblical response specifically to government guidelines that have been put in place or may be put in place? Whether we agree with them or not, whether we like them or not, whether we think they're insane or not, What is our response to government in general? Romans chapter 13 addresses that, and it addresses it quite clearly. And we're going to read the first seven verses of that, but before we do, I want to put a couple things into context here for you this morning. The first thing that I would like to say in regards to Romans chapter 13 is plainly obvious. It comes after Romans chapter 12. That's important for us. It is vitally important for us. Romans chapter 1 to 11 is theology. It covers these great topics of sin and salvation and the marvelous riches of God's grace. It is the thesis of theology for us today, okay? And at the end of chapter 11, we go into chapter 12 and then begins the application. It is saying, in light of all these glorious messages of theology, the truth that is contained here, how ought we to live? And it starts off in that application with Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in other words, I implore you, by the mercies of God, on the basis of God's mercy, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So in light of all that has been revealed about God and His goodness and His grace towards mankind in the first 11 chapters, in light of the glorious work of the forgiveness and redemption that you and I have received, the only reasonable thing that we can do is to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, to not be conformed to the thoughts, the values, or even the philosophies of the world, rather to be transformed by the renewing, or the actual word means renovation of your mind. As you yield yourself to God, And as you are transformed by the renewing of your mind, you will experience and you will give witness to the goodness and the benefit and the perfection of God's will. From that incredible statement there in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, our necessary attitude and response to a few things is laid out. Immediately following that, it talks about our response to the church. 
as we yield ourselves to God, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him, whereas we're not conformed to the world, as we're transformed by the renewing of your mind, this is how you respond in the church. And then it goes on and it talks about how we respond or how we live in the world. And then it goes on and it even speaks about how we respond, our attitude and our actions, towards those who hate us. That we don't curse them, right? Those who persecute us. Rather, we have a mind that is transformed, that knows the will of God. We have yielded ourselves to God as a living sacrifice and and we live in every aspect of our life out of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Yielded to God, sacrificed to God, surrendered to Him. Not like the world, but transformed to be more like Jesus Christ, to know the will of God. From that, we also see our response to government, which starts in chapter 13. So this is not detached from the rest of Scripture. It is not. Our response to our governing authorities is not detached from our spiritual walk, our spiritual journey, our life in Christ. It is integrally attached. Our response to government flows from our relationship to Jesus Christ. That is the first thing that I want you to note or to keep in context as we read in Romans chapter 7. The second thing that I would like you to consider is the cultural context of this passage here. Israel was under the domination of Rome. The book of Romans was written. They were a conquered nation. Yes, they were granted certain liberties under the Roman rule, such as freedom to practice their own religion, as long as it didn't result in insurrection against Rome. But they were still a conquered nation. Not only were they defeated, they were a rather despised conquest of Rome as they perpetually rebelled against Rome. They were prone to riots and terrorist activities. They were a thorn in the side of Rome. As a result of that, they weren't granted a lot of actual rights and privileges. The book of Romans is believed to have been written around 56 or 57 AD. The Roman emperor Nero came into power in 54 AD. So just a couple of years, just a few years before this book was written, you may remember that name. He's known for his cruelty. He's known for his persecution of the Christians. Believer's Bible Commentary says of the days under Nero, those were dark days for Christians. Nero blamed them, the Christians, for a fire which destroyed half the city of Rome and which he himself may have ordered. He caused some believers to be immersed in tar that ignited as living torches to provide illumination for his orgies. Others were sown in animal skins, then thrown to ferocious dogs to be torn to pieces. That happened a couple years after the book of Romans was written, I believe. But it gives a good idea of the current state of affairs for the church in which Romans chapter 7 is written. Believers, or sorry, chapter 13 is written. Believers were hated. They were openly persecuted. Extreme violence was permitted, encouraged, and even carried out by the existing government. So two things to keep in mind as we read this passage. First, it follows the command to be a living sacrifice, not conformed to the world, but with minds transformed according to the will of God. And secondly, that the government of the day was an absolute wicked dictatorship that sought the death of Christians and the destruction of Christianity. That sets the context. Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, 
and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Amen. This is a heavy passage. It's not an easy one for us to consider even. Perhaps you would say, well, Paul had to write this because he was under the thumb of Romans. After all, Paul was in prison several times. He was being observed. They were reading what he wrote. He was under surveillance. They had turned his camera on the laptop on and were secretly recording his every move. So Paul just had to put this in there to keep them off his back. Well, what does Peter say? First Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, in verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So both Paul and Peter have called the church today to subject themselves to governing authorities. The first point of this message is in response to how do we respond to governing authorities over us? Submission. Submission is the rule. Submission is a horrible word, isn't it? We balk at the word submission. It's foreign for us to use. It's foreign for me to use anyways. I, I don't, I don't like it. I don't like even the idea. I don't like the subject. I don't like to subject myself to anyone else. I'm not naturally a submissive person. I particularly do not like the idea of submitting to governing authority. A governing authority that I believe at times is wrong, at times is evil. But perhaps you noticed as we read this passage that it doesn't say anything in regards to my subjection to them about whether I approve of them or disapprove of them. They don't say anything about the government being a good government or a bad government. They don't say anything even about the government pursuing what is right or pursuing what is wrong. Within these two passages that I read, there are actually no qualifying statements given. It is direct. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. In Romans chapter 13, and submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him in First Peter. There aren't conditions placed on that submission. There isn't a caveat stating unless they do such and such a thing. Submission is the rule. 
But then the question would arise, well, why should I then submit to governing authorities? Why should I submit to them? And the answer to that is quite direct. It is because all authority is appointed by God. That is clearly what is stated here. For there is no authority except from God. And authorities that exist are appointed by God. That's a broad statement. That is a huge statement. No authority except from God. And every authority that exists is appointed by God. Does that mean that our prime minister is appointed by God? Yes. And our liberal minority government is appointed by God? Yes. And the UCP here in Alberta, or even, heaven forbid, the NDP under Notley during the last provincial government is appointed by God? Yes. Every authority that exists is appointed by God. Right down to our own leaders. Right down to municipal leaders and town councils and even elders of a church. Authority is appointed by God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, that does not mean that God approves of their policies. That does not mean that God turns a blind eye to their evil. They will give account. And that is a, as a leader, that's a fearful thing. It's a fearful thought. But he has put them where he wants them. They rise or fall according to his good pleasure. It also doesn't say that he points them because what they will do is right or beneficial. God can also appoint authorities, and he has, for, for judgment as well as for blessing. Regardless, all authorities are appointed by God. And you say, well, even in a democratic society or de- democratic government, yes, it may be a, an expression of the will of the people, as insane as that might be, but it is still sovereignly appointed by God. And that does not bring our God down to the petty level of some tyrannical dictator, nor is it a sign of God's approval of the evil that authorities have perpetuated over history. It is, however, a statement of the power and the authority of God, that he is sovereign over all. He is in control. If not a single sparrow falls outside of his authority and power, then he has authority and power to raise up or to take down kings, governors, rulers, however you look at it. All authorities appointed. All authorities that exist are appointed by God. There are a few examples of that given throughout the Word of God. One of the best examples, though, and we've seen this recently in our Sunday school, is King Nebuchadnezzar. This here is what Daniel, a Jewish captive in Babylon, has to say about King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he's speaking to Belshazzar, that is Nebuchadnezzar's son, in Daniel chapter 5, 18 to 21. So Daniel speaking to Belshazzar about Nebuchadnezzar. O king, the most high God, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts and his dwelling was like the wild donkeys, was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it 
whomever he chooses. The Most High God rules in the kingdom of men, and he appoints over it whomever, whomever he chooses. But Nebuchadnezzar was a destroyer of Israel. But Nebuchadnezzar was one of the destroyers of Jerusalem. But Nebuchadnezzar was the commander of the armies who raped and pillaged and destroyed God's chosen people. Yes, he was. Yet he was appointed by God, in that case for judgment. All authority is appointed by God. And according to Romans chapter 13, verse 2, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. So submission to governing authorities is the rule. Now, some have looked at verse 3 to 7 and have found exception to that rule. In those verses, some of the responsibility of governments is described. They are to be a threat to evil actions and not to good actions. They should value and even praise what is good. They are to be, as verse 4 says, God's minister to you for good. They also are to bear the sword of justice. That means that they are to execute justice justly. And people have read that description of what government is supposed to to be and to do and have concluded that since this or that given government doesn't fit that description, I no longer have to submit to them. But this passage doesn't say that. The description of appropriate government does not give you license to ignore the government when it doesn't act right. Your responsibility is to submit to governing authority. My responsibility And trust me, this is as much for me as it is for you, because I am as desirous of rebelling against authority. We all are. It's a thing called our sin nature. We automatically, at least I do, we automatically go there. And yet there is to be a submission. We are to walk in submission, in subjection to governing authorities. Now there is an exception There is. But I want you to note, even before I get into it, that it is an exception. Submission is the rule, and resistance is the exception. Simply put, I'll put it this way, we are only permitted to resist authority when it defies a higher authority. We are only permitted to resist authority when it defies a higher authority. A simple analogy would be if your municipal government gave a command that a provincial or federal government disagreed with, the higher level of authority overrules the lower level of authority, which makes sense. The same principle applies in our legal system. Uh, Here in Alberta, there are provincial courts, there are provincial superior courts, there are provincial appeals court. Each one of these is a layer on top of the last. And then finally, there is the Supreme Court of Canada. The higher court ruling always supersedes the lower court ruling, or at least that's my understanding of how our legal system works. So we can rightfully resist an authority when a higher authority provides us grounds to do so. In regards to matters of the faith, and actually in regards to everything and anything, the supreme authority rests in God. He is the final authority. He is the ultimate authority He's the the ultimate authority who has appointed authorities under himself who are over us. He calls us to submit to those authorities unless they command us to to go against that authority of himself. Hopefully a succinct way of putting this is we are to submit to all governing authorities unless they command us to do what God has forbidden or they forbid us to do what God has 
commanded. I'll say that again. We are to submit to all governing authorities unless they command us to do what God has forbidden or they forbid us to do what God has commanded. In those cases, we resist the governing authorities to submit to the authority of God. The prime example of that is taken from Acts chapter 4 and 5. And I'll get you to turn there if you, if you would. Acts chapter 4 and chapter 5. In Acts chapter 3, we read the account of the lame man who was healed in the name of Jesus Christ through Peter. And this caused quite a stir. A stir among the people and a crowd actually gathered. And to that crowd, Peter and John preached Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 4, they are arrested. So in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, and this is beautiful, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So we have an incredible event that's taking place here. They're preaching the word. There's been a miraculous healing. They're preaching the word, and men and women are coming to the Lord in salvation. And as we continue in this passage, the next day John and Peter are brought before the Sanhedrin. This is the Council of Jerusalem. It acted as the court of inquiry. And it settled basically all manners of disputes that wouldn't be brought to the Roman governor. And the Sanhedrin question Peter and John. Basically, they ask what authority they have to do what they are doing. And Peter and John respond to that in verse 10 to 12. Peter has already started here. He says, actually go back to verse 9. If we this day are judged for a good deed, that was in regards to the healing of this, uh, this man, a good deed to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then he starts preaching at them, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This, speaking of Jesus Christ, is the stone which the build, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Quite the response when he's hauled before the Sanhedrin. It's all about Jesus Christ. Now, after some deliberation by the Sanhedrin, we see their response in verse 18. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. And then going on, we see Peter and John's response. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what he had done. Incredible. The boldness and the confidence while they are standing before the court itself. Their response was quite straightforward and simple. We obey God. In all things, we will obey God. When human laws command us to disobey God, we will still obey God. In chapter 5, the apostles are arrested. 
They're thrown into prison for preaching the gospel, what they've been commanded not to do. Then you have the appearance of the angel who comes and releases them, and immediately they go back to preaching. Then they are arrested again, and they're brought before the council again. That takes us to Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to preach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. We ought to obey God rather than man. Resistance is the exception, but it is at times a necessary exception. We must obey God. We must obey God. But I want to be very clear on this point. It is not in some generality. We can't just say, this government is bad and God calls me to do good, so I won't obey the government. It's not ambiguous. And it can't be. If you do that, you deny the clear command from Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. We must obey God. And obedience to God includes subjection of ourselves to governing authorities. Do not deny the clear command of Romans 13. And do not deny the clear command of Acts chapter 5. We are, recall, we are called to do both. But when the governing authority over us at any level commands us to do what God has clearly forbidden, we must resist. Or when the governing authority forbids us to do what God has clearly commanded, we must resist. Notice in there that I use the word clearly. If the government tells you to lie or steal or cheat or commit murder or anything else that is clearly contrary to the commands of God, then you refuse. If your government tells you not to feed the poor or heal the sick or help the widow and orphan, you do it anyways, because that is a clear command of God. And I realize that we are likely to run into areas that appear more gray than they do black and white. But if we keep the first two points of this message in mind, I pray it will help. Submission is the rule Resistance is the exception. And I want to add a third point here. Submission is the rule. Resistance is the exception. And consequences to either must be willfully accepted. Acts chapter 5, verse 40. This is the Sanhedrin agrees among themselves. It says, and they agreed with him, that is Gamaliel. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as Christ. The apostles were beaten for obedience to Jesus Christ rather than for obedience to man. And they rejoiced. They were arrested three times. They were imprisoned at least twice. And they were beaten at least once. And they endured it. And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. And they didn't cease from preaching. 
That is resolve in the face of what we would say is unjust or undeserved punishment. That is resolve in the face of shame. That is resolve in the face of unpopular opinion. And through it all, you don't see them screaming for their rights or even providing a defense for why they should be allowed to do this. You also don't see them trying to weasel around it, uh, what they were doing or, or weasel around the clear command of God. They obeyed God and openly and willingly accepted the consequence for it. Whether we receive praise of man or mockery from man because we submit to the governing authorities in all areas that we are permitted by God to, or whether we have to resist and suffer for it, we are to willfully accept the consequences, not because they will be fun, but because God is sovereignly in control, because he is the righteous judge before whom, before whom we stand and before whom every other person, including those governing authorities, will stand. Submission is the rule. Resistance is the exception. Consequences of either must be willfully accepted. Finally, although these subjects need to be addressed from time to time, I would encourage you not to be overly caught up in them. I'm concerned that these issues are issues that are bringing division and strife into the body of Christ. They are causing a lot of division and strife in the world. Uh, That doesn't surprise me. The world is temporal focused. This is all they have or know and It's all they have to look forward to, but for the child of God by grace through faith, ultimately, this is a minor issue. In light of eternity, this is a mild or a minor issue. Certainly, this time is proving to be a struggle. Days are uncertain, but we have certainty in Jesus Christ. And we have a promised eternal hope in Jesus Christ. And we don't love this world or the things that are in this world because they are passing away. Rather, we we love God and we do the will of God. And as he promises, he who does the will of God abides forever. Even if we face severe opposition, and even if all that is happening around you is under the design of Satan and is inherently evil, and I'm not saying that necessarily is the case, we continue to do what we are called to do. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. To love your neighbor as yourself. To preach the glorious gospel. Things that we know we are called to do. We should be so preoccupied with doing the things that God has clearly called us to do, that we don't have time to be distracted by anything temporal that crosses our path. I think that's where we need to be as a church. So caught up in doing what God has clearly called us to do. That's where I need to be. Not just as your pastor, but as a person. Because I know how prone I am to get buried under the weight of all the stuff that's going on. To, to devote my attention to it and to be, whether I'm fearful or not or whether I'm angry or not, whatever the case might be, where my emotions, I'm being drained dry. And some of you are probably in the same place. It is sucking the life out of you and it is of no eternal consequence. And the things that are of eternal consequence, we are, we're neglecting. I was telling the board when we met, because we met on Monday night, we met on Friday night to try to work through where we stand and what our response is going to be. That the amount of time that I've invested in this this week is, is, is not appropriate. <laughs> it's an inordinate amount of time and frustration, angst and concern. We need to address certain things, absolutely. And we need to invest ourselves in, in addressing these. We need to know where we stand. We need to know what a biblical response is to everything, 
that comes into our lives. We need to know what a biblical response is to governing authorities. But in all of these things, do not allow the temporal to steal us away from doing that which is eternal. When Christ was approached with a horrific scenario that was highly political, do you know what he did? He ignored the politics. He went straight to the heart of the matter on an individual basis. Rather than getting dragged into expressing an opinion about the authorities or even the horrific acts they had done, if you're interested in it, it's in Luke chapter 13, verse 1 to 5. Uh, there it's recorded that Pilate had ordered some of the Galilean Jews murdered while they were offering sacrifices in the temple. It says that he mingled their blood with the blood of the sacrifices. An incredible sacrilege. Incredible, I mean, horrific, this deed that had taken place. And these men asked Jesus about this. And rather than Christ comment on the atrocities, he, he simply responded by instructing the listeners to repent of their sins or they will likewise perish. The reality is that we all will die. That's inevitable. But will we die separated from God or united with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and so rise to new eternal life in Christ? That should be our focus. And if that is our focus, I don't know if we will gladly surrender, but we, are, we should be willing to surrender our freedoms or conveniences to submit to government because we realize that they're not going to matter eternally anyways. In that sense. And if that is our focus, we will gladly suffer persecution for sharing the love of Christ, contrary to the wishes of those in authority over us. For the sacrifice that we will endure is nothing in comparison with the wonder of speaking words of life to another person. So though it is necessary to know where we stand and how to respond in a current culture, our current government, whatever it might be, don't be so caught up in it that we miss the things of real, eternal relevance. The Christian's response to governing authorities. Submission is the rule, for all authority is pointed by God. Resistance is the exception and is only to happen when we are commanded to do what God clearly forbids or we are forbidden to do what God clearly commands. Consequences of either must be willfully accepted. And don't get caught up don't get too caught up in these things which are passing away. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are in difficult uh, days that are full of conflict and that for each of us, the conflict may be different, but we realize that there seems to be chaos and it literally is as if a force is pressing down upon us and I think particularly the church. That whether this is of Satan or not, he is using it to sow division and discord and strife among the body of Christ. And Lord, we, we resist that and we ask that by your power, we would not be divided. That your church, not just this congregation, but that your church would be one as you have called us to be one in Jesus Christ. You have made us one and you are the source and power of that oneness. So we yield ourselves back to you and we delight in the unity that you have that you have produced, that you have made, that it is a creation of your hand. Thank you that we each belong to each other in Jesus Christ. We are not our own. It is a glorious thing that we can be one, that we can be united, that our citizenship truly is in heaven. We are children, sons and daughters of the King of kings and Lord of lords. We are united in you. 
I pray that we would resist that which attempts to divide us. I pray that we would go back to that which is essential. And I pray that we would be so busy doing the work that you've called us to do that there wouldn't be opportunity in the idleness of our hands or the idleness of our mind to conjure up things which would cause that kind of strife. We thank you that that there are essentials. We thank you as we've seen today that preaching the name of Jesus Christ, that there is salvation in him alone, is that primary essential, that Jesus Christ is that which unites us and which we proclaim. Give us a, a compulsion to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And when that day comes that there is resistance against us doing that, when we are commanded to be silent, give us confidence and boldness to continue to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. I thank you for this passage that we've looked at. I thank you for difficult passages and challenges to us as believers. I thank you that as we submit ourselves to governing authorities, where we don't want to, where we don't think we should need to or have to, or that it's even reasonable that we are yielding to you because we are doing it as unto you. And so you are maturing us and developing us and building us up into the, the ones that you have called us and created us to be. And I thank you that you do that through difficult times and difficult situations. Thank you that it is your work, that you are the one who is transforming us. And we look forward to the day when we stand before you, when we are completely transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, when sin is no more, when our rebellious spirit and heart has been taken out of us. When we will be like you, for we shall see you as you are, First John says. And we would ask, Lord, even so, Lord Jesus, come. May your coming be soon, and may we be faithfully serving you when you do return. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.